I'm also really excited about this teaching series, and this is something that we as a staff have kind of been praying through and thinking through and talking through and discussing and dialoguing, and, and, and the whole idea is if all we had was Jesus and one another, would we still show up? I just think the, the American church has gotten so caught up in consumerism and like who has the biggest events, who has the best worship leader, who has the best preacher, who has the best coffee, who has the best whatever those things are that sometimes we miss out on the idea that us gathering together is simply about us being with Jesus and with one another. Francis Chan tells an amazing story of a group of underground church leaders who were taken captive. And as they were taken captive, they were stuck in specific places. And they would gather together throughout the day as their captors would bring them together for lunch. And they would eat together. And then they would separate them at night. Someone somehow got a hold of a Bible in the midst of this. And what they did, and I don't encourage you to do this, but they ripped the Bible so that there were different chapters in different places and they would divide them up at lunch. So like you might get the, the Gospel of Mark, you know, and then you'd trade it for somebody for like Psalms and nobody wanted Leviticus, right? Like I don't know what it was, but there was just this passing around of the scriptures. And so at night you would be alone in this place where you were isolated and afraid and it wasn't comfortable, but you had your Bible. And then during the day, you would gather back together with everybody, and you were excited to be with everybody. You felt safe with everybody again. It felt good to be with the community again. And you would divide up the word, and you would share, like, whispers and quietly, this is what God's saying to me. Or, or hey, I underlined this part. Or I figured out, like, check this out. And there was this just beautiful, like, time of, like, discipleship and learning. And, and so what happened was all of these underground church leaders were finally released and they were put back into their community and they were warned to stop doing the things that they were doing, which they didn't do. Uh, but all of them, one by one, found the pastor in the weeks that were following. And so after they had been taken captive, it's this terrible, traumatizing, hard, difficult, challenging season. But all of them came to him and they said, I've got this weird emotion going on because I kind of miss it. And he was like, tell me what you mean. And they said, well, all we had was each other. And all we had was the Bible. And we needed each other. And we needed the Word of God. And now that we're out again, it feels like we don't need it. And it feels like we don't need each other. And we're all just going our separate ways. And we're not together at lunch every day. And I'm not as passionate about studying the word together. And I'm not doing all of those things. And I just wonder if in this season for Grace Marietta, Jesus is inviting us to a space where all we have is Jesus and one another. I wonder if there's an invitation to empty the stage. To get rid of all the fluff and all the consumerism and all the things that are involved in the American church and to get back to a point where we just want to be with one another and we just want to be with Jesus. This week, I uh, had a speaking engagement on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday out in the Bay Area. And so I flew into San Francisco. Anytime I go to the West Coast, I'm just confused the entire time. Like, I wake up at 4 a.m. every morning on the dot, 4 a.m., ready to go. I'm ready to go to bed at 8, right? 
And I'm just so confused the entire, so I, I was confused, I was disoriented, but we went to this church, and it was this church about 35 minutes outside of San Francisco. The church sat on this hill, and it overlooked this valley with mountaintops, and like it was picturesque Southern California. Like, it was beautiful, beautiful space. And the church had this giant, enormous, like, bigger than this room, coffee shop. And so there was, there was coffee on both ends. There was tables all throughout it. It was like fancy tables, right? Nice little, like it wasn't like the things that have been passed down from your grandma's church, which are kind of the things that we have. They didn't have purple pews, surprisingly, at this church. Uh, they, but, but they had all of the things set up, and it was this beautiful, and the, like the whole front of it, and the ceilings were higher than what this is in here, was just a window that overlooked this picturesque California. California place. And I walked into the sanctuary, and I'm telling you, the sanctuary, tech, tech folks in the room, it was geared up. Like every bit of gear that you would want in a church. As I spoke on the stage, the entire back, floor to ceiling, was me on a camera, which everybody was excited about. No, I'm just kidding. It was just this giant screen. There was all the laser lights, like the band was playing, and they had like smoke coming up, and like, like it just everything was happening. It was like so legit. So then I walked over to their children's space, and they had like multiple levels of slides, right? So like the kids would like go up the steps, and then there was like a slide, and it spun around. And, and I remember sitting there, and I was just looking at all of it, and I was like, Jesus, I want slides. Like, could we get some slides? Could we get, like, one laser light? Like, could, could, we, could we get indoor bathrooms? Like, maybe? Like, like could, we, is there, could we do some of those kinds of things? Like, I started just thinking through all this, and, I, and, and it all crept into me. Like, this stuff would make me happy. This stuff would make, like, if we had this stuff, ministry would be so easy. You just show up, you turn on, you press play on the smoke machines. I don't know what you do with that. You just press, press the smoke machine button, you, you, you brew the coffee, and you open up the slides, and the Holy Spirit's going to show up. That was what was going through my mind of just, if we had these things, this would make us happy. There's an ongoing story for our church that I've seen play out over the last seven years over and over and over again where new people kind of show up to our church and they'll, they'll say like, hey, I, I love the community. I love the simplicity in which you do worship. I love the fact that there's not a lot of bells and whistles. I love the fact that you guys are doing simple church in a simple way and that you're doing community and we're excited to be here and we're in. And then about six months later, those same people will come to me and they'll say, hey, pastor, why don't we have dot, 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 slides? Why don't we have smoke machines? These are not the real things that people ask for, but why don't we have whatever? And, and it, it feels like we're in love with the idea of simplicity, right? We're in love with the concept of I just want Jesus and one another until it gets into practice, and we're like, but I would really like a slide. I would really like this cool event. I would really like a concert from 
Kanye or something like that. Like, I, could we do that every once in a while? Like, there's just all of these things where people are like, I want this, but in our hearts, there's still this pull towards something else. It's, it's I want Jesus and really good coffee. I, I want to be with one another, and I want the slide. I, I, I want this, but the music has to be perfect, and the sermon has to be entertaining, and the pastor has to challenge enough, but not challenge too much. So I have to feel a little challenged, and I have to laugh a little bit. But I also have to just like feel like there's wisdom coming out of it. When I was trained to preach, I was trained to use colored pencils. This is funny. I was trained to use colored pencils, and each color represented a different thing. So when you wrote in a you wrote a Bible verse, you had like the color blue. If if you wrote an illustration, the color was orange. If you wrote a joke, the color was red. And 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 what what I was taught was there has to be a certain amount of red, blue, and yellow in every talk. You got to balance it out, right? There's got to be just enough jokes. So there's got to if you got if you use five verses, you also have to use five jokes. Right? If if you tell five pieces of history on scripture, you've got to use five personal illustrations on how to do this. You see how this all works together to say, I've got this challenge of I want to bring the word that I believe that Jesus gave me for our community this week, but I also have to do it in a way that is entertaining enough, a way that is fun enough, a way that brings enough joy into the room, a way that's challenging but not too challenging, all of those things together every single week. We want Jesus and one another, but if we're really honest, we want some of the other stuff too. Are you, am I right? I read once a psychologist who said that in order to be happy, the human soul needs three things. They need safety, they need to feel clean, and they need to feel significant. And what is meant by that is that in order to be happy, we have to have a sense of freedom. We have to feel a sense of freedom, as if we're valuable, as if we don't have to walk around feeling ashamed or feeling condemned. But the challenge, this psychologist said, is that many people are overshadowed by a lurking sense of judgment, a a, a lurking sense of regret over a specific action or a specific moment in time. There is this thing that they can't put their finger on, but there is always this feeling that maybe I'm not good enough. That maybe if people knew the real me, they would reject me. And sometimes I think we believe that the wrong things will actually make that thing right. That the deep longings that we sense in our heart, the freedom that we desire will actually be healed by something else. Uh, I, I, I called my doctor this week because I'm getting older. Uh, I have not reached the point where I have the pillbox with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I'm not, that, I'm not that seasoned yet. For those of you who are, God bless you. I'm running really fast in that direction. Uh, uh, I don't have that yet, but I do have a lot of things going on. The older I get, the more my body says that's enough. Uh, and so there's pills that I take for those things. And so I, w- I, I was out in California. I realized two of my subs- uh, prescriptions, not subscriptions, those are different things, uh, had run out. And so I called the doctor and I said, hey, I, I need to refill these two prescriptions. And, uh, and then the pharmacy called me and said they're ready. And so I went and picked them up. And I took all these medicines yesterday. And I was feeling just really jittery all day yesterday. Like very weird jittery. And it wasn't because I dressed up like Bob Ross at the trunk or treat. Uh, 
I just kind of had this, like my hands were shaking a little bit. I just felt really jittery all day. So this morning, I get my medicine out and I look at it and I realize they gave me the wrong medicine. And they also gave me an enormous dose of it. And so I yesterday took these pills that I thought were going to heal me, right, my cholesterol. <laughs> and instead, I took something else that did something completely different. <laughs> and I wonder if there are moments in the church where we believe that the thing that we're taking is the thing that's going to heal us, but it's actually the thing that's making us sick. I wonder if consumerism and individualism is the thing that we think, if we just had the slide, if we just had the coffee shop, if we just had the laser lights, if we just had this, and, but it's actually the thing that's making us sick. And I wonder if there's a return where we actually do receive freedom, where we actually do receive the joy of what Jesus has for us. So over the next month, we're going to simply talk about what it looks like for us to empty the stage. What are the simple components? What are the simple principles? What are the simple disciplines that we as a church need to step into so that we can become the people that God has called us to? And today, I want to go into Psalms 32. If you got your Bibles, you can open them up to Psalms 32. And, and I, I want to talk about confession. And I want to talk about forgiveness. How much fun is that? Talk about consumerism. You want to draw a crowd, talk about confession, right? Uh, I, I want to talk about that. David opens Psalms 32 with this. He says, blessed is the one, happy is the one, right? Blessed is the one. Uh, uh, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What David is going to do is he's going to actually connect our happiness and our joy with our forgiveness. He's actually going to connect our blessedness with our ability to receive the goodness and the grace of God over and over again. He's saying if you want to be happy, be right with God. If you want to experience worship, be right with God. If you want to be blessed, be right with God. And, and there is a sense that when we gather together as a church, part of the reason that we gather here is so that there will be some moments of self-reflection. Right? It's so that we will actually think about where am I with God? Am I right with God? We gather together once a week as a community to kind of remind ourselves of who we are and remind ourselves of what God has invited us to and remind each other of what God is at work and what he's doing. But we live in a culture that is not great at self-realization. We're great at others' realization. Right? So we can see everybody else's brokenness. I can't tell you how many times after I preach a sermon, and I'm sorry if you've done this, but I, I, how many times people come up and they say, I wish my, my mother-in-law had been here for that one. <laughs> or I wish someone else had been here for that sermon. And yeah, I always say the same thing, and I try and say it as graciously as possible. I say, that would have been great, but I'm really glad that you were here to hear that sermon. There is an e it's easy for us to others realize, right? To look at what other people need and what other people want. It's hard for us to be humble enough to say, oh, wait a minute. 
The word today in Psalms chapter 32 is not just for my mother-in-law, it's for me. The word in Psalms 32 today is not just for my neighbor, it's for me. The word today in Psalms 32 is not just for my spouse, it's for me. And so there's this self-realization, self-reflection that happens. There's a moment of repentance and forgiveness that happens. There's a moment where we should each week reflect on, all right, did I get away from where God was inviting me to be over the last seven days? Did I wander? This needs to be almost like a, like a compass. Church is a compass that re, resets our course and, and realigns us with the heart of the Father. And so we gather together, and as we gather, and as we worship, and as we sing, and as we pray, and as we open up the Word, we just say to God, did I get off track this week? Because there's so many spaces that we're in that are noisy and loud and fast and quick and moving, and church should not feel like that. It should feel like a quiet space where I can reflect and think and dream and hope and discern, how did I get here this week? What am I walking in here with? Am I carrying something heavy? Am I hurting? Did something happen? Did I not forgive somebody? Did I get off track? Was I too harsh with my kids? Was I, uh, did I cheat someone at work? Did I, whatever those things are, we should come into this place and we should feel those things and experience things, those things. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sin is, is, is covered. And there's this refrain that happens in these passages over and over and over again in Psalm 32, and it's the phrase Selah. And Selah is, it, it like follows something really great. So there's this great line, and then it says Selah. And Selah doesn't mean amen. Selah doesn't mean sick burn. Selah doesn't mean boop, right? Selah is like Think about it, is what it means. Think about it. Pay attention to it. It should make us, and I'm guessing for the original readers of this, it made them go back and say, oh, I'm going to read that again. Because I don't want to just read it. I, I, I want to think about it. I want to pay attention to it. And, and the psalmist looks upwards and connects all of our unhappiness and all of our frustration with a disconnection from God. When we are feeling unhappy, when we are feeling frustrated, when we are feeling uh, all of these things, what's happened is we've disconnected from the Father. So when Adam and Eve first sinned in the garden, there's this, a moment, there's this moment instantly of shame. Remember this? And what did they realize? They realized they were naked, is what they realized. They had this moment where they realized, okay, I'm naked, and that's not okay. Which, that's how normal people respond to nakedness. I know the old guy at your gym does not respond that way, and he is wrong for it, right? He does not need to tell you a story without his pants on, right? Like, put those pants on before you tell me a story, 85-year-old man at the gym, right? The most confident person in the world is the 85-year-old man in your, at your gym. I promise you. He is the most confident man in the history of the world. It's not okay. It's, it's not okay. I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. <laughs> normal people, normal people feel shame with their nakedness. Normal people don't want to be naked in front of others. We have nightmares, right? 
Uh, about, like I, I was telling, I was up in front of a bunch of people and I didn't have my pants on. Like we have nightmares about those things. That's normal. The, that feeling of soul nakedness is ingrained in our souls now and it goes back to our relationship with God. Not all shame is legitimate and I need to name this. There is shame that comes from suffering. There is shame that comes from abuse. There is shame that comes from things that were done to you that were not right. And, 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 but but, but in, in when we experience real shame, when we experience shame that is good shame, it is a shame that disconnects us from and separates us from God. And that realization of I'm feeling shame and guilt actually is a gift. We don't see it as that, right? We don't experience it that way, but it is. Think about your marriage, right? You, you know that there's sometimes in marriage where you just feel like you're not clicking. You're not connecting, right? There's this, I don't know what's going on right now, but we're not, something's going on and we're not connecting. And so you've got to figure out a way. How do we get back to intimacy? How do we get back to connection? How do we get back to a space where we're connecting rightly again? It, it, it's full of that sense of disconnection and coming back to connection. This is what shame and guilt does in our lives is we have these moments where we feel disconnected from God. It, it's like pain. Think about it this way. Pain, not all pain is bad, right? Pain doesn't feel good, but pain actually saves our body from experiencing worse injuries, right? If I stuck my hand on the oven and didn't experience pain, what's actually happening is my skin is getting destroyed. It's hurting my hand, but I don't know it without pain. Does that make sense? So that pain actually is a connection point. That pain is actually a gift in many ways. This is what the psalmist is saying, is that guilt can be God's messenger. It shows you that there's something that may not be right. Maybe you're finally at a place where you're starting to see the harm that you've actually caused to the people that you love, and you feel guilty about that. And our culture would tell you guilt is wrong. You should never feel guilt. Don't feel guilty. Be yourself. Do your own thing. That guilt is actually a gift from God because that guilt leads us to reconnection with the Father. That guilt of feeling naked and hidden for Adam and Eve was actually a gift. And you know how good God is? What did God do with their nakedness? He didn't say, you should be ashamed, dummies. He, did, he, he, he made them close. He covered them. He gave them a gift. And it's the same thing he does to us in our guilt and in our shame and in our nakedness and in our fear. And when we feel uncovered, God covers us. And he says, I'm going to cover you in my wings, in my protection, in my grace. I'm going to cover you with my righteousness and not your own. I'm going to be good to you when you're experiencing these feelings. And so the realization that you are in need of God's kindness, of his grace, and of his mercy sometimes is the greatest gift that you could ever experience. We want to run from guilt. We want to run from shame. And Jesus says, I just want you to bring your guilt and shame to me. Because sometimes there's guilt and shame that I need to heal because it's something that happened to you that wasn't right and I want to bring healing to you. And sometimes your guilt and shame is because you've made mistakes and I want to help you make it right. And I want to teach you and I want to guide you and I want to direct you. I want to take you to the place where I'm calling you. One of the most famous songs that's ever been written in the history of the church is the song Amazing Grace. 
Right? Amazing Grace has this incredible line. I think it's the best line in the entire song where it says, was grace that taught my heart to fear. Have you ever thought about that while you're singing it? Grace taught my heart to fear. That's not what we think of when we think of grace. But then the second part of it says, and then grace my fears relieved. There is grace when I feel pain and hurt and guilt over the things that I've done because that's the very thing that is going to heal me. Is that humility of saying, I can't figure this out on my own, Jesus. I'm broken and I need your help. I've messed up and I need your forgiveness. I need your grace so that I can keep moving. I need your hope so that I can keep going on. I need all of these things because fear is the beginning of wisdom and not the end of it. Passage goes on, verse 3, it says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was what? Heavy. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. So think about it. When I kept silent, when I didn't ask for forgiveness, when I didn't deal with my transgressions, when I didn't deal with the guilt and the the hurt that I was experiencing, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the summer, as the heat of the summer. So here's the first point. The church is a place where you learn to be honest about your sin. No one's excited about that. No one's signing up for that. But this needs to be a place where we actually acknowledge it, where we don't hide it away, where we don't run from it, but we bring it into light. I did not cover my sin. That is a beautiful picture back to the garden, right? I did not cover my sin. The first thing that God did when they came out of hiding was he made them uncover themselves and then he dealt with their sin. In order for God to cover their sin, he first had to uncover it. Isn't that beautiful? Like what if we feel our conviction around our own brokenness in that way? That what God is doing is he's uncovering something. One of my kids, when they were little, did something really dumb and bad. And it wasn't terrible because they were little. But they felt all this shame and guilt around it. And they knew they had messed up. And uh, they ran upstairs. And I found them under the covers of their bed. Just like there was a lump in the bed there. Right? And I said, buddy, it's okay. You can come out. Everything's all right. Your mommy and daddy, they love you. Everything's good. I started to peel back the sheets. And he pulled them back over real quick. And slowly over the next half hour, I just sat with him and said, it's okay. It's all right. Everything's good. Your mommy and daddy love you. Everything's okay. And slowly that little head popped out of the sheets. And there was a hug. And there was grace. And there was a little one running around the house with joy. This is what the Father does for us, guys. He sits with us and he says, it's okay. I love you. It's okay. I love you. I've actually dealt with this. I'm good. I'm here. You can come out. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to hide. 
You don't have to stay under the covers. I want grace to be a place where we, what, what we've been hiding in is uncovered. And I know that makes people uncomfortable, and I'm sorry. But when I preach, I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to feel like, oh man, there's some stuff I got to deal with because it makes me uncomfortable when I'm preparing for it. Because it makes me uncomfortable when I'm reading it. Because all of the things that I'm telling you to do, I'm experiencing in my own life, and I'm learning the same things right along with you. And I want to not hide in my brokenness. I want to give it to the Father over and over again. I want us to be uncomfortable. I want us to be convicted of our sins. I want us to be challenged and encouraged. I want us to walk away from here saying, Jesus is good, and He He's the one that I run to, and he's where I find my hiding place, and he's my protector, and he's my provider, and I'm going to go to him. The word in here, it was, was heavy, right? Heavy. His hand was heavy upon me. And I don't know if you work in the corporate world, but, but sometimes there's this person in the corporate world. There's, the person exists in the church world also, and that person is nicknamed the heavy. You know who I'm talking about? Right? The heavy is the person that always brings the discipline. The heavy is the person who says the things that nobody else wants to say. The heavy is the one who's comfortable being the bad guy. The heavy, and, and sometimes this is what we think we're going to find with God. We're going to find the heavy. That God's going to yell at us more. That God's going to shout at us more. That God's going to tell us that we're more guilty and more full of shame than what we thought we were when we came to him. And that's not what the word heaviness means here. Heaviness means there is this weight that I'm carrying that I was never intended to carry. And I need to give it back to my Savior who will carry it for me. It's that I've carried shame and guilt that I was not intended to carry because my shame and guilt has been dealt with by Christ on the cross through his resurrection and he has taken it from me. And when he looks at me, he sees his son who is beloved, who is holy, who is healed, who is a new creation, who is in Christ. And suddenly all of that stuff is taken care of. And when I walk away from church with that feeling of freedom and that sense of joy and that sense of I'm right with God again, and I'm on the right path with him, and I'm walking in step with him, that's when I experience happiness, not through the freaking slide. Amen. Secondly, church is a place where you learn to own your sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and forgave the iniquity of my sin. So think about it. I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you will forgive the iniquity of my sin. Look at that passage and tell me how many times does it say I and my in there? It's a lot. We can count it. Somebody said it really quietly, guys. I, eight. Eight times, I and my. Some of you work on the good, good work there. It was, it was fast. Here, here, here's what happens. The reason it says I and my eight times in there is because typically when our sin is exposed, the very first thing that we do is we justify it and make it about someone else. 
and not own it as I and my. Right? Think about when it's revealed to Adam that he's failed. Right? What's his first move? The woman you gave me, right? Which is awesome. Because he's figured out a way not just to throw off the blame on his wife, but to also throw it off on God. Right? The woman you gave me made me eat it. In one sentence, he blamed God and his wife, right? The Bible is so succinct, right? He just very quickly, and this is what happens when our sin is revealed, when we find out, like when we're convicted, when we feel like there's a stirring inside of this, there's a heaviness around the sin that we've committed, there's some sort of guilt that we're experiencing, we instantly start to justify it. Well, the reason I'm this way is because I was treated this way. I haven't had the privileges that other people had. I've worked really hard and nobody ever sees how hard I work. What I'm doing is not nearly as bad as what this person is doing. We come up with all the justification. Here's my guess. If you really spent a lot of time paying attention to your inner dialogue and what was actually going on in your thoughts or in your mind, you would actually know your own justifications. How do you justify it? When you feel the heaviness and the weight of the spirit of the living God asking you to return to him. And instead of returning to him, confessing, unhiding, uncovering, saying you're safe and living in his freedom, you continue to justify your behavior. What does that sound like for you? I know what it sounds like for me. We all have our own justifications. Something happened in your history and in your story that gives you a reason or a license. Someone else did something to you that gives you a reason or a license. Others sinned against you. I and me. It's mine. It wasn't the woman. It wasn't you, God. It was me. Have you ever had somebody apologize to you and they say this? I'm sorry that I did this to you, but... Or I'm sorry that I made you feel that way. Those are lame apologies. Because what they are is they're justifications cloaked in an apology. And oftentimes this is also what we do to the Father. Instead of saying, Lord, I've fallen short of your glory. I've made mistakes. I want to get right with you. I want to return to you. I want to, I want to experience your presence. I want to be with you. I want to be close to you. God's forgiveness always begins when and where blame shifting ends. God's forgiveness and his grace and his mercy always starts when we start with I and my. That's when we start to experience it. Uh, the word for confess in the Septuagint, which is the standard Greek version of the Old Testament, is, is this idea of seeing things from a perspective of the one that you've wronged. That's the idea. Right? It's this, there's an empathy connected to it. There's a, I can see this through someone else's eyes and not just through my own, which is actually how forgiveness works from human to human, isn't it? There's this seeing of, okay, I understand how my actions hurt you. I understand how the things that I said damaged you. I understand how the work that I did did something to you, and I see you, and I want to make it right. That's real forgiveness, right? Right? Somebody comes to us with that kind of forgiveness, we offer grace. Somebody comes to us with the justification kind of forgiveness, 
It's a little harder to step into that. So repentance for us, and I've said this so many times, it's not just about turning. We, we think of, of, of repentance in this way. I'm heading in this direction, I repent, and I turn and I head a different direction, which is true. But repentance is also agreeing about God, agreeing with God about why I'm turning. Right? I'm not turning out of my sheer willpower to turn. I'm turning because I actually see how the way that I'm living is damaging myself and others, and I want to align with the Father. Does that make sense? It's not just, I'm going to sheer will it. I don't want to do this, God. I don't like your ways. I don't like the things that you're asking me to, but I'm going to tough it out for another few weeks. That's another form of justification. And that's often how we live with God. What it is, is aligning. I want to walk in your spirit. I want to walk in the path that you've given me. I want to move from blaming and justifying to I and my. I did this. I need to grow. I need to get better. All right, are we ready for some good news? Because there is good news in this passage too. This has been a little, let's just beat everybody up so far. Here's the good news. Three, church is a place where you experience God's goodness. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, for you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Think about it. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you. My eye will be upon you. But don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit or a bridle, or it will not stay near you. There is this beautiful picture. Listen to this. You are a hiding place. You preserve me. You surround me. I give you instructions. I will teach you. I will give you direction. I will counsel you. Do we experience this at church? Do we experience the presence of God? Do we experience his his, his preserving, his hiding, his counseling, his surrounding? Do we experience teaching and direction and counsel? All of these things that he says that he's doing. The beautiful thing about it is in the church we get to do it together. We get to be a part of each other's discipleship. We get to be a part of one another's life. We get to see the breakthrough in someone else's life. Because the evidence of God's work in our life is growth. Living things always grow. And the more living we are in Christ, the more we are growing and becoming more like him. And so when you journey with people, I've been the pastor of this church for seven years. And over those seven years, it's been so beautiful for me to see people who once were this way, but now are this way. People who were once stuck in this place and now are experiencing breakthrough in this place. I get to benefit from just being around them. I get their testimony rubbed off on me. I get a piece of their story that becomes a part of my story. I get to walk with people and encourage them and see how this happens over and over and over again. Someone uh, came up to me about a year ago and, and said, I hate the way that you do communion. And I never know how to respond to people that are that direct, right? Like, could you start off with something else, and could you curb the the frustration a little bit when you talk to me? Is what I feel like saying to them. And and I so I don't know what to say. So I was like, I'm I'm sorry. 
I, I don't know. I, like, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but let me tell you why we do communion the way that we do. We do communion every week at the end of the service, and we do communion in a moment where there is quiet reflection for you, where I'm not talking, the band isn't singing, there's nothing on the screens, there is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, and there is you. And every week I ask a question. Ask Jesus this. Ask the Holy Spirit this. Because here's what I believe. I've just talked at you for 30 minutes or a little more. I'm already over my time today, right? I've just talked at you for a while. I want to get out of the way and I want to let the Holy Spirit speak to you. And so I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry that you don't like communion the way that we do it. Because I think what you need is I think you need a moment to say, Holy Spirit, am I right with you? Holy Spirit, from the songs we just sang, from the word we just received, is there anything that you want me to change in my life? Is there any invitation that you're inviting me into? Is there anything that you're calling me to? If God was here, which he is, and he was speaking, which he is, and he wanted to speak to you, which he does, what would he say to you? Number four, church is a place where you rejoice in God's grace. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice. O righteous, shout for joy, all of you in my upright heart. There is this honesty, there is this desire for holiness, there is this desire to be right with God that when we sing the songs about it, like we just sang, I'm sorry, Lord, for the figs I've made it. Did any of us think about what are the things that we've made it? What have you made it? Are we just singing a song? We're, we're actually singing about not just singing a song, and we're singing a song. Are you with me? Like, that's what I was thinking when I was worshiping. I'm sorry, Lord, for the things I've made it. What have I made it? I, I've, I've made it just another thing that I do on Sunday mornings. I show up every week. I sit right there. I sometimes have to even pretend like I'm excited about it. I've made it something that it's not supposed to be. I've made it a chore. I've made it a job. And God was saying to me, this isn't your job. You're not here because you're the pastor. You're here because I'm the living God. You're not here because you're supposed to sing a song and sit up front. You're here because I want to commune with you because you are my son and I love you and I want to be with you and you're making it into something you're not supposed to make it into. And when I discover that, right, something awakens in me and my worship changes. I'm not going through the motions. I'm rejoicing in the fact that I love my God who loves me, that he's a good father who gives good gifts to me. I'm thinking about the ways that he's been faithful and true and good over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, there's this joy and rejoicing. There's something that has to come out of me to tell others how good he is. That's what worship is. And that's coming in a few weeks. But today... Today, here's, here's what I want to just challenge us. What are the things that you've made it? What are the things that you've made church that it's not supposed to be? What are the things that have disconnected you from the Father where he's inviting you back? Where does he want to pull the covers back? Slowly, kindly, lovingly, 
and say, it's okay. It's okay. And then you know what's something that churches do that's really healthy and good? We confess. We confess to God and to one another. And so we're going to open up the altars here. We're going to have our prayer team come. We're going to take communion. We're going to do all of those things. And as we do those things, I just want you to be thinking about, is there something that I need to confess today? And I've had a sense all day that maybe there's somebody in the room who has just never done that. You've hidden forever. And today's the day where Jesus says, stop hiding. It's safe.